So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip over there with us to the book of Romans. And um, wanted to let you know also we've got a lot of folks that jump on with us online. Just wanted to share a message to them. I know that we've got COVID uh, going on around the country and around our area. And if that is a real concern to you, but you still want to gather for worship, we do have our 9-10 service that meets every Sunday. We have a great time down the gym. It was a little toasty this morning. I'm just kidding. It was a little cold down there. Noses were dripping and running, but uh, the gym's going to be a little cold, but we're going to work on that this week. And I would just invite you to come down and be a part of that service as well. Um, I got three dates for you. The first of those is 386. A man, young man by the name of Aurelius Augustine was walking around out in the garden one day, and he saw a uh, text of Holy Scripture chained to a lectern, and he walked up to the text And he opened it up, and providentially it opened to Romans chapter 13. He was not a believer at the time. Verse 11, and he read these words. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Friends, that day, Martin, I'm sorry, Augustine gave his life to Jesus Christ and We know the impact that he's had throughout human history. Another date that I'd share with you is um, 1515. An Augustinian monk monk was preparing his lectures for his students. Um, He had been a student of Augustine. And uh, as he was preparing his lectures on the book of Romans, he ran across some notes that Augustine had written uh, on the particular text he was studying where Augustine was pointing toward how we obtain our righteousness through faith in what God did for us, not what we do for God. And it was in that moment that Martin Luther realized that he could not earn his way into God's favor, but rather that he simply put his faith and his trust in the work that Jesus had done on the cross. And friends, in that moment, Martin Luther gave his life fully to Jesus Christ. 1738, one more date for you. A man who was already ordained to the ministry in the Anglican Church in England was listening to a message from the book of Romans. He was in London on Aldersgate Street, and he heard this message of how he could put his faith in Jesus. He didn't have to do anything to earn God's favor, and he simply put his faith and his trust in Jesus. And John Wesley says in that moment his heart was strangely warmed. And again, we know the impact of that man in human history. Well, the book of Romans has meant a lot to an awful lot of people. I share those with you just to let us know that there's tremendous doctrine here in this book. And so we're going to be looking at that over the course of the coming weeks, months. It won't go to next year, I'm sure. But uh, anyhow, we're going to stick with it for a while. We're going to open up Romans today. I'm going to ask if you would stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 16 and 17. We're going to backtrack to the first verses, but we're going to read these for right now. Let's read these together. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You may be seated. Thank you all so much. Well, I want to zero in on that word gospel there in verse 16. Paul says he's not ashamed of it, of the gospel. So it begs the question, well, what is the gospel? He uses that term all along through this letter uh, to the Romans. And so let's just unpack that word for a few moments. 
Uh, the word gospel in the English comes from the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion has a prefix at the beginning. It's the letters E-U, sounds like U, um, and it means something good. U means something good in Greek. Yes, it does. Think about that for a minute. And um, so this word, this prefix ou, you put it in the word ology and you get um, eulogy, and it means that we're going to say something good about somebody at their passing. The word euphonics tells us that you put something good, we're going to hear something good, something that sounds good to us. So again, this prefix ou means something that is good. Uh, then you combine that with the term angelion in the Greek, and that word is from the root word ange angelos, which is the word we get for angels. It means a message or a messenger. And so when we put the two together, the prefix ou and the word angelion, what we end up with is that there's something good, a good message that somebody has for you, and we might think of this as good news. Uh, today, the term gospel is largely associated with Christian doctrine, with Christian faith. Uh, but before it had such a uh, connection to Christian doctrine, it was used more broadly. In the Old Testament times, this idea of euangelion would have, uh, would have connected with uh, somebody who was bringing good news to you. For example, runners uh, would have brought news from battle. If there was a battle going on and there was a city close by, they would want wanted news of who's winning that battle. Uh, what do we need to prepare for? What can we do to support the troops? And so they'd set a watchman on the watchtower, and then the runner would come running from battle, and the watchman could tell just by the way that the runner was running and the dust that was kicking up from their feet whether or not they were bringing good news or they were bringing bad news. And so this is what Isaiah seizes on in Isaiah 52 and verse 7 when he says, How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who bring euangelion, who bring good news. So that's how that verse or that word can be used in other contexts. But again, it has a lot of meaning here in the New Testament associated with Jesus. So let's, let's look at that. Flip to verse 1 of Romans chapter 1, and we see Paul employ the term gospel for the very first time in this letter. He's going to use it a whole bunch more, but let's take a look at the first verse. Paul says, Paul, a servant. Y'all doing okay? All right, you're warmed up, I hope. All right, Paul says a servant or slave, actually in the Greek, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Now, the term apostle uh, is reserved for people who met certain criteria. And one of those criteria was this was somebody who had actually seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. So they had seen the resurrected Christ. That was criteria number one. And the criteria number two was that the resurrected Christ had called this person into full-time ministry. And so Paul met both of those criteria on the road to Damascus when he saw the resurrected Christ, and the resurrected Christ called Paul into full-time Christian ministry. So Paul says he's an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Now here at Hebron, we teach the full counsel of God's word. We believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of scripture. We believe that this book is the authoritative word of God for all people for all time. Amen. Right? That's what we teach. That's what we believe. That's how we understand the Bible. And we see here that that comes into play. That means that not only God gives the general concepts, but he gives each and every exact word as it occurs in the text. And that becomes very important here when it says the gospel of God. Notice that Paul didn't say the gospel about God or the gospel concerning God, but rather he says in the genitive ending there, he says the gospel that is possessed by God, the gospel that is authored by God, the, God, the gospel that is owned by God. It is God's gospel. He calls it the gospel of God. Paul's point here is that he's not the one who came up with this. 
Paul's saying, I'm not the one who, who, who invented this idea of this person who would come into the world and die for our sins, and then we could have our sins forgiven. Paul says, God did all this. It's his gospel. He calls it the gospel of God. And for this reason, he says, he has been set apart. So before Paul gets into any of the reasons for which he writes this letter, before he begins to unfold these miraculous, wonderful teachings of Christian doctrine, Paul wants to make sure, chapter 1, verse 1, that everybody knows that what he's teaching is not his information. It's something that God put together. Um, if I was to show up and I was to tell you, I have a message for you from God, you would look at me like I was crazy. But that's essentially what Paul is saying here. He's saying God put this thing together, and he's going to write about it in Romans. God put this thing together, made, made all this happen, manufactured all of this, authored this, possesses this. It's God's. It's not mine. And I'm bringing that good message to you. Paul says, verse 1, that he has been set apart for this good news, for this gospel message. The term set apart is an idea that it's a holy assignment that Paul is on. That he's not just uh, out there, you know, peddling something but that this is an assignment that God has given him. He's been set apart for it. It's a holy venture that he um, partakes in. And then he says in verse 2 that God promised this gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this gospel, whatever it is, was promised in the Old Testament through the prophets of the Old Testament. And then Paul says, verse 3, that this gospel concerns God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Paul is referring to the fact that in the Old Testament, God had promised David that David's throne would be established forever, so that whatever this person that would come in the bloodline of David would be one who would be set upon the throne of David and who would reign over God's kingdom, and that he would do this forever and ever and ever. And that David's, David's throne in that sense would be established forever. So this, this person, this gospel of, about concerning God's son, it would be from the bloodline of David. So Paul's good news concerns God's son who came into the world through the womb, this Messiah who would be both God and man, God in the flesh. John chapter 1 and verse 14 writes, And the word became flesh, the word referring to Jesus, and made his dwelling upon us. And in this way, the Son of God would fulfill the Old Testament scriptures stating that the Messiah would descend from the bloodline of David. So things are beginning to shape up, and we're only in verse 1. Not even halfway through it, right? This should be an indication to us that the rest of what we're about ready to read in Romans is a masterclass of Christian doctrine. I mean, the rest of it rolls out thick with all sorts of meaning and teaching that Paul wants to share with us. And again, we'll be getting into that in the coming weeks. It's for this reason that the early church fathers, when they were assembling the New Testament, recognized all the rich teaching in Romans. And so they stuck it at the head, even though it wasn't the first letter that Paul wrote and it wasn't the chronology wasn't right. They made sure that they put Romans at the head of all the other epistles because of the rich teaching that it had to share. They wanted to give it a primary place in your Bible down to verse 4. And this Son of God was declared to be the Son of God uh, in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. And then Paul names this Son of God as Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the term Christ is a title. It's not a name. Uh, he wasn't named Christ. He was named Jesus. But he gets the title Christ. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. It's a translation from the Hebrew word Messiah. Paul is recognizing here who Jesus is. That, he, uh, that he, uh, he, he is legitimate to the term Christ. And then he calls him our Lord, which is the term Adonai, which is used to refer to God. He says, look, this Messiah is going to be God, Lord, Adonai, in the flesh. 
the person that we're looking for. So he assigns Jesus his proper title. Uh, look at the rest of verse 4. It says, I'll read it again. The Son of God was declared or proclaimed to be the Son of God. In other words, he was proven to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Ever met anybody resurrected from the dead? I'm assuming not. <laughs> I have not met anybody resurrected. It'd be a little bit creepy. It'd be kind of a crazy moment there. But no, I've never met anybody resurrected from the dead. Paul says, how do we know that Jesus really is this person? How do we know that he is the Christ, that he is Adonai, that he is the Lord? How do we know that he really is this person? He says he proves it by the fact that he was resurrected from the dead. Now you say, well, Gordon, how do I know that Jesus really resurrected from the dead? Well, I got four evidences for you this morning that I want to share with you that Jesus really was resurrected from the dead. The first of those evidences um, is the guards at Jesus' tomb. The guards at Jesus' tomb. You know, we, knew, we know from ancient times that if the Roman guards lost their prisoner, they got their head cut off. They got killed for it. And we know from ancient records that King Herod uh, had these guards executed. And so that's our evidence number one, that these guards, you know, it was a dead body. I mean, how do you lose a dead body, right? Well, he resurrected from the dead. Angels put the guards to sleep, and Jesus walked right on out past them. But nevertheless, they lost their prisoner, and because of that, they had their heads cut off. So that's evidence number one that the resurrection really happened. Evidence number two is the evidence of the rabbis trying to silence anyone talking about the resurrection. In other words, the reaction of these rabbis. You know, all the rabbis had to do, if they wanted to prove that the resurrection didn't happen, it was a very simple way to fix that. All they had to do was produce the rotting body of Jesus, right? Put it on a cart, drive it through Jerusalem, show everybody, look, there's the nail piercings, there's his back. There he is, he's dead, there's the corpse. That's all they had to do. You say, well, they didn't do that. No, well, maybe that's because the disciples stole his body. Oh, you mean the disciples slipped in under the noses of 15 guards who had been given explicit directions not to let anybody come and mess and disturb with this body, roll the stone away while they sprinkled some fairy dust and kept the guards asleep, took the body out of the tomb. Well, let's say all that happened, right? Let's say that they really did steal the body, and then these, these guards, knowing that they were going to get killed, let all this happen, all 15 of them. And then let's say that the disciples stole the body. Well, then all the rabbis would have had to do was come up with a legitimate explanation as to what happened to the rotting body of Jesus. They couldn't do that either. And so instead, they reacted in a way of trying to silence anybody who went around talking about the resurrected Jesus. Oh, I saw Jesus resurrected. I saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Let's throw him in jail. Let's throw her in jail. Let's, let's threaten them. Let's persecute them. Let's punish them. And so the reaction of the rabbis alone tells us that Jesus really did resurrect from the dead. A third piece of evidence that I'd present to you that the resurrection really happened are those eyewitnesses. The book of Acts tells us that at least 520 people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. You think to yourself, well, Gordon, why couldn't more than 500 people have seen Jesus resurrected from the dead? I mean, why didn't he show himself to like on TV to like a million people, right? Why, why, didn't, he, why didn't he present himself and walk through, you know, Western Europe, why didn't he go visit a whole bunch of people and let everybody know that he was resurrected from the dead? Well, you know, think about it. If he had only pre presented himself to the 11 disciples as resurrected from the dead, we would have said, yeah, why, why didn't he show himself to 50? 
And if he'd only showed himself to 50, we would say, why didn't he show himself to 100 people? And if he'd only showed himself to 100 people, we'd say, why didn't he show himself to 300 people? I mean, friends, we could play this game all day long, right? The point is, all these people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. And then I think that's evidence number three. I think evidence number four is the most compelling evidence of all, that those people that Jesus revealed himself to, that he showed himself to resurrected from the dead, friends, they were willing to give their lives to defend that truth. You know, history is littered with the bodies of people who are willing to give their lives for something they believed in. But rarely, if ever, is someone willing to allow themselves to be impaled on a post, burned at the stake, have their head chopped off, executed upside down for something that they knew to be a lie. And so I think that's one of the most compelling evidences of all. And it's for this reason that Paul here in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 identifies the resurrection from the dead as the declaration, right? That Jesus really is the Son of God, born of Mary from the bloodline of David, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And Paul says, this is what I have been set apart to preach. Okay, I'm going to come up for breath, for air here. Um, that's our treatment of this text for today, and so that means it's time to ask the question. We ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate all that. That's, that's some good stuff, right? Just four verses in, but what difference does any of that make to me, to where I'm living? I mean, I got Monday morning. I got stuff to worry about. What does this difference does this make to me? Well, I got two answers as to why this is important, and the first of those concerns the resurrection itself. Jesus was talking to a woman and he said to her, Jesus said, John chapter 11 and verse 25, he said, I, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, whoever believes in me, though he dies here on this earth, will live. On another occasion, Jesus said, John chapter 14 and verse 19, because I live, you will live also. Friends, this is an amazing promise, and Jesus repeated this over and over again throughout the New Testament. For example, John chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus said, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John chapter 10 and verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He said, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Friends, it is because of the resurrection, because Jesus rose from the dead, that he proves that he can do the same thing for you and I. That's an amen right there, right? Amen. Bingo. All right. Come on now. Warm up. You say, but Gordon, listen, there's all these great religious leaders throughout history, human history, that have said they know how to get eternal life to you. They know how to make it so that you can go on to heaven or wherever, or some nice place. I mean, there's people like Muhammad, there's people like Confucius, there's people like Buddha, there's people like Joseph Smith and the Mormons, there's the Scientology folks, the Christian science people. I mean, there's L. Ron Hubbard, there's all these people out there that have said they know how you can get eternal life. How do we know which one of these people is right. Jesus is one among them, right? How do we know which one of these people is right? How do we know which one, the rest of these are wrong? I mean, how do we know that? Y'all ask the simplest questions. I mean, they're just so easy, right? 
It's a very simple question, a very simple answer. The answer is, let's just see who actually resurrected from the dead. Right? I mean, that's pretty easy. We can know whether Muhammad was right or Confucius was right or Jesus was right just by looking and finding out, well, who resurrected from the dead and who didn't, right? You know, no other religion in the world even claims that its founder and leader rose from the dead because it is a preposterous claim. And yet Christianity, true biblical Christianity, claims that its leader, the Son of God, born of a woman from the bloodline of David in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, did rise from the dead, and that he is alive forevermore. And this is why Jesus said, as long as I live, you will live also. And I'm going to live forever, so so will you. Folks, I love to say it. You follow a dead Savior, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, Mary Baker Eddy, L. Ron Hubbard, Joseph Smith, whoever, you follow a dead Savior, and you'll end up just like him. Huh? Uh Uh-huh. All right? But the good news, the gospel, is that God God authored, that he orchestrated, that Paul came to declare, is that Jesus is not a dead Savior, that he is a living Savior, a risen Savior, alive forevermore. And friends, we have a living Savior who can back up the promises that he made to us. Because I live, you shall live also. And that even when you die here on this earth, you shall live with me in heaven. That is a wonderful promise. Friends, this is the gospel. This is it. This is not just that Jesus went to the cross and paid for our sins, but that he rose from the dead to prove that he was the one and only payment that God would receive for our sins. Not our good works, not our church attendance, not our going to Sunday school, not our teaching or helping out around the church, not our obedience to the Ten Commandments. None of this Martin Luther figured out, John Wesley figured out, Augustine figured out. None of this meets God's requirements for us to enter into a relationship with him. Friends, God only forgives sinners at the cross. That's the only place where this is done. And so let me ask you, what are you trusting to get you to heaven? What are you counting on to get you in there? Right? When, when you get to heaven and the pearly gates open and St. Peter's there and he says, why should I let you in? I don't know if St. Peter's going to be the one to greet you there at the gate or not, but anyhow, that's kind of what church history tends to think. But if St. Peter says, why should I let you in, friends? What are we going to say? What's your answer going to be? I was a good person. <clears throat> Doesn't work. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I, I taught Sunday school. <clears throat> it's not going to work. I helped out around the church. I was a nice person. Not going to work. I drove an electric car, and I, and I planted trees in my backyard to reduce my carbon footprint. Friends, those are wonderful things, but that's not going to be what gets you into heaven, friends. Uh, friends, the only thing that's going to work is if we say, I come on the merits of what Jesus did on the cross, and I put my total faith in that in order to get into heaven, I trust in that work that he did, plus nothing else. And friends, when we say that, Peter's going to say, come right on in. We come on the merits of what Jesus did on the cross, the fact that he rose from the dead and that we belong to him. And therefore, because I live, Jesus said, you will live also. Friends, if you've never done that, 
It's time to do that today. And we're going to give you an opportunity here in just a little bit because nothing else will work. And so I want to encourage you here just a little bit to avail yourself of the one thing the Bible says that will work, trusting in Jesus and what he did on the cross, and he proved that God would accept this payment by rising from the dead. Now, you may be here this morning and saying, Gordon, I've already done that. Like, I've already responded. I've already asked Jesus to be my Savior. I've already put my faith and my trust for eternity and what he did on the cross. I've already done that. So, I mean, what difference does this make to me? Well, let's look back to those verses that we read just a little bit ago, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. Let's look at that for just a moment. Verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, that is, getting to heaven, to everyone who believes. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Friends, the gospel is the cure for sin. The gospel is the cure for all the ills of mankind. The gospel is the cure for eternal hell. That's what the gospel is, and it's good news. Why should I be ashamed of that? Friends, we need to be really honest with ourselves and admit that many, many times God has laid before us great opportunities to share Christ at work, to share Christ at school, to share Christ in our neighborhood. And when the opportunity was presented to us, we took a pass. And we took a pass simply because we were ashamed. We didn't want the ridicule that we knew it was going to bring. We didn't want the laughter, so we didn't open our mouths. We were ashamed because we didn't want the persecution that we know it was going to bring. We were ashamed because we didn't want the losses on a human level, the losses of popularity the losses of a business deal, the losses of an inheritance, perhaps, the losses of a promotion at work. You know, there are a lot of Christians that are afraid to share Christ with their boss because they're afraid how it's going to affect their next promotion. There's a lot of Christians who are afraid to share Christ with their unbelieving parents because they're afraid of how that may affect their inheritance one day. There are Christians who are afraid to witness to their friends because they don't want their friends to think of them as unpopular. Friends, when you boil it down, it's just flat out being ashamed. A couple of scriptures for you. I don't think I have this one for you, but Hebrews 11 and verse 16 says that God is not ashamed to call us his children. Hebrews 2 and verse 11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us, us, his brothers. You know the way I figure it? God's got an awful lot more to be ashamed of and claiming me than I do in claiming him, right? He's getting the raw end of that deal. Let's just be honest, right? Um, you know, Jesus, to, to, to say to the angel, to stand before the angels in heaven and say, he's looking at me, he's mine. I mean, he's got an awful lot more to his reputation that, that could be tarnished than to me to stand before people and say that he is mine. Friends, it is perfectly absurd to think that we would be ashamed to claim him for ourselves, to claim God our Father for ourselves. I mean, if anybody's got anything to be ashamed of, it's not me, it's him. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is 
the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In just a moment, we'll share in the, in the communion elements. And if you would like to say, you know what, Gordon, I've been listening to you talk this morning, and I have never made that decision to accept Jesus into my life. I want to give you that opportunity. While we're sharing the communion elements, I'd like for you just to get up from where you're seated, come forward here to these steps, kneel down, and I'll kneel with you, and I'll pray with you to receive Jesus Christ, friends, and the rest of your eternity, friends, will be turned on a dime because you made the decision to accept and to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we want to give you that opportunity this morning. Um, I'm going to pray. We'll share in the communion elements. If you'd like for me to pray with you to receive Christ this morning, you come forward when that time comes. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for speaking to us from your word today. What a wonderful challenge you set before us, God. It's wonderful to know, Lord, that you love us, that you celebrate us in heaven and amongst heaven's hosts, Lord, that you're not ashamed of us. God, may we in May we reciprocate that same feeling in our workplace, in our home, our neighborhood. May we be in no way ashamed to call you Jesus, the Christ, our Lord. God, we love you so much. Embolden us. Maybe this morning, God, we need to take first steps to claim you as our Savior. During this week, God, ahead, maybe we need to take some steps to claim you in our workplace as our Savior. Or whatever we need to do, Lord, we just ask that we would respond in full obedience to your prompting. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. We'll celebrate in the time of communion together, and then we'll close with a time of worship. If you'd like to pray, you come forward. I'll pray with you.